Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Okay, Hebrews 13. Uh, we're at the end of Hebrews. Oh, and it's such a good chapter. It's one entire chapter that is like the condensed New Testament version of Proverbs. Like these are, this is wisdom. This is how to live your life. Uh, so we, but I, I want to put this in context a little bit, uh, you know, because we have some folks that haven't been with us through all of Hebrews. So the argument of Hebrews is if there is, if Jesus is in fact the Messiah, then there's a new covenant and then there's a new church. And then Hebrews 10, if you just go back one page, Hebrews 10 verse 22, if all of that's the case, then let us draw near with a true heart in the full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, and let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised, and let us consider one another to provoke us unto good love and good works. If, if Jesus is the Messiah, that should change our lives, it should change how we act, because Jesus also said we're coming back and we have a job to do in the meantime. So the conclusion of Hebrews is expanding on those ideas from Hebrews chapter 10. These are the spiritual disciplines. Chapter 11 was an entire discourse on faith and that ultimately we have an assurance of God's faithfulness is the argument of chapter 11. Chapter 12 is that we have hope without wavering, even in the midst of strife and enduring things and having to put up with uh, people making fun of your Jesus-loving. And then chapter 13, we get to the third part, which is to consider one another, this idea of love and good works. So chapter three, 13 ends the letter of Hebrews with instructions on how we actually practically love each other and have a lifestyle that does that. I like this stuff. This is just great. Um, being a practical person, a nuts and bolts kind of person, I love when the Bible just says, do this. And then the challenge is, can I actually do those things? Like, can I live that way? And can I make that a lifestyle? So we'll start in verse 1. It says, let brotherly love continue. Sisters, you're included with that. That's a general term right there, that we love one another. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated since you yourselves are, are in the body also. Marriage is honorable amongst the bed, and the bed shall be undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Again, just each sentence is an entirely different idea. And they're packing in all these practical applications. How do you take all the joy that we have? We have faith that God's going to keep his promises. We have hope that he's coming again. If that resides in you, it should bubble up. So how does that overflow into our lives? And all of these are, this first set of things on chapter, verses 1 through 6 are all interpersonal skills. They're how we deal with one another. Remember, Hebrews has always been in the context of the church. It's how we deal with one another in the church. And they've always addressed it that way. Later in the chapter, they're going to talk about how we deal with people outside the church. 
But when it comes to inside the church, we start with verse 1, which says, let brotherly love continue. Actually, what's interesting here is the, the idea of brotherly love is to abide or remain in a loving relationship with somebody who you don't have to remain in a loving relationship with. So brotherly loves, I think, a misinterpretation. In the Greek, it's actually mino, Philadelphia, mino. So there's a word on either side, and when you translate to English, you lose some of that rhythm. In fact, the exact same rhythm is in verse 2 with strangers, entertaining strangers. Mino, Philadelphia, mino. And the two minos add emphasis to it. Like this is a, a command. Let your love continue. And so when we see that happen, when we see that idea of tarrying in brotherly love, or the love that a family would have, only there's no biological connection. And it's important to understand in the Greek, they've got a lot of words for love because they worshiped Aphrodite. So they defined love very particularly. There's agape love, which is the unconditional love of a parent for their children. No matter what the kid does, that parent's going to keep loving them. It's a love that gives without any expectation of a return, agape love. They didn't use that word. They used Philadelphia, right? And then they didn't use the word eros. That's the term for sexual love. Right? They didn't use the word storge, which is the term of family members loving one another. You know how brothers and sisters fight and they get into it with each other? They still love each other. That's called storge love. So that love it, it comes out differently than the kind of love we're talking about. Philadelphia love is the kind of love that pals have, that buddies have. Military people have a brotherhood of the people that were in their unit. And that they've made a commitment to one another for the rest of their lives. And that's the term that's being used here is the kind of love where people say, you and me, we're family forever. And it's a choice that you make with non-biological people to be in a brotherhood or to be in a sisterhood with each other for the rest of your days, forever. So it's as enduring as storge love. It's as unconditional as agape love. But the key element of Philadelphia is that it's a, it's a choice. You choose to love that person, whether or not they're like you. Whether or not you have to put, it's, you've been through the trials together, so you're going to stick together. What I, it's one of the things, the reason I'm taking time to define Philadelphia is it is really hard to find this in American culture today. You have to go to some interesting places. I think it's one of the, the powers of sport and athletics. It's one of the strengths of bands and music groups that get together and that they're in it for life. And it's one of the strengths that, that the church should have is that when you look around the room, you got people that have your back. And you know they have your back. You don't have to doubt that. So Philadelphia love. 1 Corinthians 13 uses the definition, so the, the love chapter, right? And it's love suffers long, it's kind, it does not envy, it does not parade itself, it's not puffed up, it doesn't behave rudely, it doesn't seek its own, it's not provoked, it thinks no evil, it doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Where there's knowledge, it'll vanish away. That's agape love, not Philadelphia love. So the Bible has different nuanced versions of this and what it's talking about. Jesus gathers a group of contrary people called disciples, right? He put Peter and John in the same group, right? Very different person. He put Matthew and Simon in a group together. And Matthew and Simon out in the world would be trying to kill each other. Right? Simon would be the assassin that would kill Matthew. Matthew would be the person that would tax Simon to where he can't buy a weapon. Right? So Jesus put these people into a group and he asked them to get along with each other, abide with each other, put up with each other. 
So it wasn't the same kind of thing as the love that God has for us. It's the love that brothers and sisters are expected to have in a storge relationship. But they chose it. So the repetition here is emphatic, right? Mino, Philadelphia, Mino. Abide like brothers and sisters. Abide. Just do what you've been told and figure that out. And this is so hard for folks. So we get a firm foundation of faith, chapter 11. We get to run with hope, chapter 12. And now we get to be a chosen voluntary family that we're supposed to abide with each other, chapter 13. And when we're back in chapter 10, they, they use the phrase, consider one another, be considerate of each other. So verses 1 through 6 address these interpersonal considerations of loving relationships. The first one in verse 2 is, again, same format, epilantholame me epilantholame. So it's kind of, there's a rhythm to this so that it's supposed to be memorized, right? Don't forget strangers, for by doing so some of unwittingly entertained angels. So the linguistic link there is that this is an emphatic too. Entertaining strangers in the Greek, the word there is actually hospitality. So it's where we get the term hospitality from. The, to welcome a non-family member into your house and have them be, feel like they're part of the family. That's called hospitality. It's a skill. It's something that's a gift. It's something you have to develop over time. But other brothers and sisters in the fellowship can come over and enjoy your hosting. It's implied that as Christians we do this all the time. Notice this is not a letter to Christian leadership. It's a, it's a letter to the entire congregation. Hospitality. Don't forget it. The reason they say don't forget is because it's easy to forget that we have a command to host people and entertain people. When it says strangers and the context is the community of believers, they're talking basically about people to come to visit your fellowship. So when you have a family fellowship and you're all tight and you're brothers and sisters, it is really easy for somebody to come into that environment and for them to feel like they're not part of the group, that they're left out. That there's a, there's a powerful click here and I'm not part of it. So it's super easy to let that go. So part of the command here as we, as we move through this chapter is thinking about how do we let brotherly love continue? Well, first of all, don't forget people when they first join your fellowship. Don't do that. Uh, other people take that verse and they take it literally like entertaining strangers. Actually, that's not literally. That's simply taking the English translation literally. And, they, and, and I don't think that's a bad way to look at this either. Like, do we have strangers over to our house? And when somebody's not in our family, when they come over, do they feel like they're part of our family? You know, and that's not just saying help yourself to everything in the fridge or walk on me like a doormat or wreck my place. That's not what that's about. But it is like you bring people in and they just feel loved. Romans 12, verse 10, be kindly and affectionate to one another in brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. 1 Timothy 3, 2, give a qualification for leaders that they're given to hospitality. They've committed themselves to it. 1 Peter 4, 9, use hospitality to one another without grudging. Somebody wrecks your stuff, let it go, right? In fact, have people over and try to get in your mindset. They're going to wreck everything we own, and I'm okay with that, right? And it's fine. I'm just going to let it go. Bonnie's like, mm, I don't know about that. <laughs> why is this so important? Why is this, when they're saying, let's talk about love, why is this the first thing on the list? And I think that it's amazing that they're assuming that these churches are meeting together in the first century. They met in homes, just like we are right now. In the first century, they didn't have cathedrals. They didn't have big buildings. So everybody that walked in the door, it is awkward to walk into somebody's home. Am I right? You never know what you're going to get when you walk in there. So... There's this idea of letting go of what you own and having a generous spirit, 
helps you to build ties with other people. Wow, these people care more about me than about my, their stuff. That's pretty neat. So you have faith, you hold on to Jesus, you have hope in his return. It would be stale if you didn't have joy in fellowship because of that. It would just be a dead church. So if there isn't hosting going on, then it becomes an, an odd environment where it's just a building. So we think that we do this and it's easy to forget. I would say there's no condition that this only happens once a week. To abide in love, to abide, and then to not forget hospitality, not forget, means you're doing it all the time. And that means during the week. That means when somebody needs somebody to talk to, you're like, come on over. That means you keep a stock of things in the fridge ready to go. I mean, it has to do with this just ongoing hospitality that we do all week with each other. And it's easy to forget each other during the week because we're out in the world. We're doing our jobs. We're doing other things. But when somebody says, man, I need some prayer this week. I'm going to have a tough week. It is really easy to forget to pray for people. So we take our attention on it and we say, okay, I'm going to make a prayer list. I'm going to put this on my alarm every morning and have a little audio clip that says, go ahead and pray for Sam this week. And you're going to do things that help you to do that. It says, why do you do this? Because some have unwittingly entertained angels. That's likely a reference to Genesis 18 when Abraham had those people visit and he gave them a meal and he entered. Well, there's, there's instances in the Old Testament where angels appear very human-like when they come by our house. But they come, they come in the name of God, they come in shalom, and you're like, welcome to my house. So there's this idea of, of and I think this is why they translated it strangers, there are people that travel around and when they want to hook up with the body of Christ and come visit for a week, they need to have a place to go. Missionaries in the first century relied on existing Christians in town to be hospitable and put them up for a while. So if you're going out of your way to welcome folks, to, to meet a new family in church and even open up your home to people, I think you're, you're exercising that command to be hospitable and to have your home available for things. Um, actual angels do appear throughout the Old Testament. I don't think that's the point here is that they're saying you're going to have angels in your house. But the point is to be hospitable and sometimes God's going to really bless you because you did. And so we live a life of hospitality. Verse 3. This is the first two verses. Verse 3. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them. Those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. Complex verse. All of the Hebrews in, in this book has been addressing the early persecution of the church. So this isn't saying necessarily that all prisoners need to be taken care of, but the ones who are in the body with us. So they regularly had people that were part of their body that were sitting in jail cells. And the idea is when you got part of your body that's not with you, you need to extend that hospitality outside your church. So you got strangers that can come visit inside your church. You got people that are detained away from your church. So this week we have people that are homesick and they're not with us this morning. What does that mean for the rest of us during the week? How do we take care of those people? You know, and it might be calling them up saying, can we bring you a meal? How are you doing? Do you need some, need some salve for your hives or something like that? And we just take care of folks. So the early reference to supporting acts and the persecuting of the church here, I, I, as I think the context that the writer meant for us to hear, um, there's a clarification there that we think of them as ourselves as that we're in the body also. So when one of us in the body is being persecuted, that affects all of us. They're going after the whole team. So it clarifies, I think, that there is this support here to do it. The other thing with criminals in the first century is they didn't eat unless somebody brought them food. Like the Romans weren't about to feed prisoners. They were happy if they starved to death. It didn't matter. They weren't going to spend a penny on a prisoner. So they had places they could lock them up. They didn't, and if, and if 
you know, if you wanted to keep that person alive, you needed to actually come and support them and bring them food. And that was, you know, the very first prison ministry that was going on. Some people read this verse as that it means anybody who's in a prison, and I think that's perfectly okay. I don't think there's anything wrong with prison ministries and getting out. And Maybe they're a stranger in a prison, but, but it's okay to show love to people that are in that spot. Some people read this verse, and it's anybody that's separated from the church. So it is the people that are homesick. It is the people that are missionaries away from the body for a period of time. It's people in nursing homes that can't physically get to the church. So how do we as a church actually take care of those sorts of things? So when Mike ends up in a nursing home, we got to make sure to come visit him once in a while. You know, and that's one of those kinds of elements. Then you get to verse 4, and it, switch, it just totally switches gear to marriage. But remember, all of this is about how we love one another. Hospitality, visiting people that are gone, and then marriage. Verse 4, marriage is honorable among all, the bed undefiled, and fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So the Bible elevates marriage as a concept. And here it commands for us as a body to keep marriage sacred. We keep it in high regard. And it's very important. And we live in a society that is pushing sexual permissiveness. And the church is called to do the opposite. Instead of sexual permissiveness, um, we actually adhere to this core idea of marriage and family as something that we need to hold up because the world's not going to do it for us. So marriage becomes important. This is especially true of those living outside of God's established commands. It's not okay to compromise and tell people that it's okay to just sleep around because it's destroying their ability to have a trusting relationship with people. This is also not cause to be judgmental of people who have in the past had troubles with this. This is a current present tense command to the, to the kingdom. So we know a lot of folks that really struggle with the idea that there's stuff in their past that they've wrestled with. And what we say is that there's a command, well, as of today, let's keep it pure. And let's move forward in that kind of purity. If you want to look at how the Bible celebrates marriage as this beautiful thing, we, we'll get to the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament eventually. God sees marriage, and, and frankly, when it mentions the bed undefiled, it's a direct reference to sexual relationships in the marriage that that's something that God elevates as beautiful and wonderful and precious. And that it's supposed to be something that we actually treat that way. So child rearing is not the only purpose for sex, right? And, and the Bible recognizes that and it sees it. There is something much more powerful happening than just making babies. 1 Corinthians 7, Nevertheless, avoid fornication. Let every man have his own wife. Let every woman have her own husband. Simple enough, right? And I think for this to happen in a church, we have to recognize that when we have married couples in the church, that we, we keep that fairly, we pay attention to it. Let me give an example of this. Um, and I think this is important, and it sounds super legalistic, but it's really not legalistic. It comes off this idea that we, we treat marriage as precious. So if I'm married to my wife, Stephanie, which I am, by the way, then everyone in the church recognizes that that's a precious relationship, and there's a purity and a strength in that marriage. You talk to Stephanie, pretty much assume I'm going to hear about it. Talk to me, pretty much assume my wife's going to hear about it. I, ladies, I, you're precious, you're wonderful, you're sisters in the church. I'm not going to have a private session of prayer with you at a coffee shop or that sort of thing. I'm just not going to do that because I have a marriage that I need to keep the purity of that as something that's elevated within our body. And vice versa. Like uh, if I walked into a room and some guy was praying with my wife and had his hand on her shoulder, I'd be like, get away from my wife, buddy. And I would give, show some Philadelphia love with my brother. Like, back off, that's my wife. So as a body, we say marriage is honorable among all. Everybody in the body respects the marriage. I respect everybody's wife. 
and I would treat her like a sister, but I would respect the fact that there's a special relationship between married couples. And in doing that, I think we elevate the name of Jesus because people see a different kind of community. Not a legalistic community, but a community that has a regard and a respect for those relationships. They're important. For our single people, same thing. We respect the fact that it is dang hard to be single sometimes. And that's a calling, and it's something that can be a struggle. It's awkward and hard to ask each other out on dates. These millennials have no clue how to ask each other out on dates. Right? And it becomes really tough, but we just treat that respectfully and we treat that honorably. And we don't put them in situations of temptation as a body if we can help it. Not to be legalistic, but to have a high regard for marriage among all. We want to keep the bed undefiled. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. If God's going to judge them, do we need to? Nope. I think we can use discernment and say, here's what the Word of God says. But at the same token, they have to be convicted to not fornicate. And that's a really tough balance from the church. So, and, and, and something that is, we need to decide if that person's going to be in leadership with our fellowship or not. But we need to understand that there is a judgment that's coming for people that don't respect that marriage bed. So communing that, if I have a brother, I'm not going to let him go through life making that mistake without lovingly telling them the truth about that. God's judging that behavior. You think there's a reason you're far from God right now. It's because you're breaking that rule. Get it right. As of today forward, keep it pure. Keep, even if you're not married, keep that marriage bed pure for when you are married. So there's that idea of, I think, God celebrating sex within marriage, and he condemns sex outside of marriage. But look at our world. They celebrate sex outside of marriage, and they condemn a pure marriage relationship. And so we stand apart in doing these kinds of things. We live a life of purity so that we can be free from shame, and free from mistrust, and we can enjoy the benefits of those things. Then you get to verse 5, totally different subject. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. The word conduct there is manner or way or character. Let your whole lifestyle be one where you don't covet things. You don't cling to things. Covetousness is not, is actually kind of a, it's a negative term. It is to not love money or to have ambition for more money. So covetousness is, I think, framed in the negative. The opposite of not loving money then is to love money, which would be greed or avarice. But covetousness is the opposite of those things. Not only do you not have greed for money, you don't even care. You go the opposite direction. I don't care about money, and I'm going to do that. And you trust that the Lord does it. So to be content is a really balanced approach to money. In fact, I like this. It's also really anti-cultural. Our culture tells us to always get more money. And if you think you have enough money, then you should plan for the future. And if you're done planning for the future, then you should start stockpiling luxury items and building things up. So this is a really anti, like a rebellious thing to say, is to be content with what you have. It doesn't say to get rid of everything and live like a Benedictine monk and wear sackcloth and ashes all the time. That's an image of mourning. Uh, it doesn't say that to have things is bad. Um, it does say that you need to spiritually not be clinging to those things. So Philippians 4.11, I love how they put this. Not that I speak in regard of need, for I have learned that whatever state I'm in to be content and to know how to be abased, to know how to abound everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, to abound and to suffer need. I've learned how to be content wherever God's put me. And this is Paul writing from a jail cell. And he's like, I'm okay with having jail. So if I can be a, a content with having things, then I can also be content with not having things. It's not the things that determines my joy. 
So we live a life apart from avarice, ambition, and it frees us to be generous and open-handed with, with our lives. This is important. So these things come with two references to support the point. Well, the first reference is, I will, I will never leave you or forsake you. It's interesting that that's the reference that has to do with greed and avarice. So if God's always with us, we don't have to worry about stuff that we get our satisfaction in other places. In the Greek, I will never leave you nor forsake you is actually five negatives stacked up on each other. So if I read just the literal Greek, it's will not, not leave, will never, never leave, not forsake. Right? It's a, it's a huge emphatic. And we get to the end of, of Hebrews and we're seeing a ton of these emphatics. They're big exclamation point commands. Love one another. Abide in that. Keep the marriage bed holy. Let your conduct be without covetousness. And then you get this emphatic, never, 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 never. Never forget Jesus is with you. Stick with it. So realizing this is a striking promise and it's told again and again and again throughout the Bible. Frankly, psychologically, this is the, this is the, this is the prize weapon in our arsenal against the enemy. If we can have a content heart, he can't get to us through greed or avarice. He can't get to us through discontent or envy. It's the battleship in the middle of our fleet. And as a body, if we can live and, 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 and live that way, it evaporates fear, worry, doubt, security. It evaporates all those concerns from our life. We also have a, a sixth commandment here. It, it is to boldly say and proclaim who our helper is. It doesn't say to wait or be rude. It says to that we do this all the time. The Lord is my helper, verse 6. That we, say, that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? So we believe in our heart that Jesus will never forsake us, and we say with our mouth, God's my helper, I don't have fear. I'm not worried, what can man do to me? Think of the message that sends to our culture and our world. If we as a church just got good at saying that, and everybody we interact with, believer or unbeliever, we're like, the Lord's my helper, I don't fear, what can man do to me? I'm good. You know, and I think that's one of the things when people want to get there. And this is a really interesting evangelism tool. Tom, you always ask about this stuff. Psalm 118, if we have Jesus, we have everything. And any desire beyond Jesus is playing into the world's narrative. So we're like, all I need is Jesus. I'm content in Jesus. And we can say that again and again and again to people. And it's an absolute tool for us to use in evangelism. Because it goes right to the other person's heart, who is full of avarice. They are coveting. They are pursuing things of the world. And so when they meet somebody that's honestly like, no, I'm good. I have enough. It doesn't say to sheepishly wait around and let people try to read our minds. It does say to boldly say it. And, and there's, a, a, there's a thing going around the church right now that you never need to speak, that people can just see Jesus in you, but you never have to say it. That's cowardly. When people see Jesus in you, you're supposed to say, hey, the Lord's in my helper. Take that attention, give it right back to Jesus. Oh, you see something good? That's Jesus in me. You point it out. It doesn't say to rudely push it on people. It just says to be bold. Be confident in what you're saying. It says to do it all the time. So God being good, that's a supernatural outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to summarize the first six verses. Verse 1, love is fueled in verse 2, hospitality. Verse 3, caring. Verse 4, purity. Verse 5, generosity. And verse 6, boldly saying it to people. 
Like people are like, okay, what do I do now that I'm saved? I just love these lists because I can go through them and think, which of these things do I get to work on today? Is today a day of hospitality? Is today a day of purity? Is today a day of being generous? Is today a day where I boldly proclaim what I love? Like people in the world are so ready to tell me what they love, but it happens to be things like sports and music and hobbies and entertainment. And it's so easy for us to share that with people that sometimes I think we're tempted to make that the connection point with people. We're going to go do airsoft. You want to come with? But the danger is to then never proclaim Jesus Christ in the process. You know, and, and, I, and, and it's one of those ideas of being bold about what we say. We're not worried about what people think. And that idea of constantly thinking of how do I consider one another in a better way? How can I be more loving to the people in my church? That's a really interesting approach to this. Because people that are not of the church watch how you treat the people in the church. Verse 7. <laughs> Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. If we're going to love one another, it is not my obligation, it is your obligation to keep me in check. Right? And you need to be watching some things. So verse 7 tells us to be mindful. Uh, the Greek word for that's one you know, it's mnemonic, which is where we get the word a mnemonic device. So the idea is you need to memorize. It's, so this, the, the idea of when it says remember, it's to memorize those who rule over you who have spoken the word of God to you. Like that's a tough Greek sentence, so it shows two features. Um, one is that they're A, teaching the word, and two is the whose faith that you follow. And so we have this kind of idea that there are a set of experiences of faith in chapter 11, and veteran believers in the church should have had experiences they can tell you about. Oh, I remember when this happened. I remember when that happened. And as a new believer who hasn't had as many experiences where God's been faithful, you listen and you remember and you create mnemonic devices to help remember how God acts in people's lives. It's why we kind of share those stories. 1 Timothy 4.16 says, Teachers are supposed to heed to themselves and to doctrine, but then flip this. You're supposed to remember and pay attention to teachers, and you're supposed to tune into doctrine. So if a teacher is teaching a false doctrine, it's your job to get the heck out of that environment. Right? There'll be, if there's nobody here next week, then I'm going to be really convicted. <laughs> so the church, here's something that, again, this is really anti-cultural in the U.S. Right now in the U.S., we have an issue with leadership and strength in leadership. It's absolutely under attack. And the idea of leadership is that we're supposed to be doing things without any sort of real vision or goal or, or direct leadership from other people. The Bible doesn't struggle with that at all. In fact, it uses a strong term like rule over, hegemony, power over, authority over. It also holds those leaders' authority in a really powerful way, and it says that it's better for someone to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea than somebody who leads folks astray. So leaders have more responsibility, um, and leaders are asked to lead and to go before people and to have a command in that situation. Now, you can read that the wrong way and say, okay, then we need a legalistic system. We need to have bosses and it needs to be a leading by force. But I'm also going to point out the Bible has a really different idea of leadership that doesn't fit our fleshly view. Leadership is never about force. It's about leading the way. So you follow on your own choice and there's nothing. In, in, so it's the carrot, it's not the stick. You always say, I'm going this way and here's where I'm going. And you look around the church for leaders where you're like, I like how they live their life. I want to follow that. 
And nobody forces you to do it. There's no dominion in the sense that God has dominion over us. There's simply veteran and experienced and mature believers, and there's believers trying to follow that maturity. And in that, we find happiness. That's why it says in verse 7, the outcome of their conduct. Your job is to be looking for fruit in my life or anybody's life that you consider a spiritual leader. So you're supposed to be looking for that. Are these people authentic? Is there fruit? Not, is my pastor perfect? So I'm going to address that. Sometimes people want to put teachers of the word on a pedestal. But we're plagiarizing the word. We're not inventing these ideas, right? And we're not perfect people. We're brothers and sisters in the faith just like you. And I sat and listened to teachers my whole life before God called me to do it. And I'm not just talking about me. I'm talking about anybody in the church that's kind of taking on those leadership experiences. So if, for instance, you are in the youth ministry and you're doing youth ministry and there's somebody who the church is assigned to be over youth ministry, then that person rules over you because you're working in their ministry with them. And you come alongside those people and you consider them and you think of them and you pray for them. We'll get to that too later in the chapter. Um, because they have to give account for that ministry. You don't. So because of the accountability, they have more responsibility. Qualifications that Timothy give also reflect chapter 13 on a number of points. So I just want to read it because so far all of verses 1 through 7 are to the body of believers, but notice how similar they are to what Paul tells Timothy are leadership qualifications. So here's the cool thing. If you find a way to do verses 1 through 6, you will have people in the church that say that person's ready for leadership or they're ready to start their own Bible study. They're ready to take this on and be an example to others because they've journeyed for 10, 15 years to figure out verses 1 through 6. They've become better at tending to themselves. So they're worthy of this. So verse Timothy 3, a leader should be blameless, the husband of one wife, village, vigilant, sober of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. They can't like be a bad teacher. They need to teach well. Not given to wine, not a striker. They don't like to hit people. Not greedy of filthy lucre. They're content with what they have. But patient, not a brawler, not covetous. Not covetous. One that rules well their own house, having their children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man doesn't know how to rule his own house, how shall he ever take care of a church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he falls into the condemnation of the devil. See, kind of the connection with some of those things with what we're reading in Hebrews. The Bible presents an image of a good leader, but it prov also provides an image of a wise follower, someone who's learning. So we follow and we learn from those in the spirit and it's impacting our life on how do we do it. We'll talk more about that afterwards, I'm sure, too. Then you get to verse 8, which is kind of this interesting verse that gets thrown in here. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Honestly, all these verses feel really disjointed to me when I first read through this. Like, I, wow, these things seem really unconnected to one another. But it's odd that this principle of immutability, God never changes, gets thrown right in the, matter, the middle of here. But I want you to note something. Verse 8 is a seal on verses 1 through 7. Also note that in verses 1 through 7, you have seven commands. Seven is the number of divine perfection. Essentially, when you put verse 8 on there as like a, a lock on those first seven verses, it's essentially saying those seven verses are all you need to know when you become a new believer. Work on those things. You don't have to do anything else. You get somebody else in the church that wants to recruit you to go do ministry on a roller coaster. Let's not worry about that right now. Worry about those first seven things. 
and do those things to the degree to where you're being a, a blessing to the church that you're in. The first part is a complete, perfected set of doctrines that are laid out in front of you, verses 1 through 7. And we have this new teaching. We have a new high priest. We have a new covenant with God. Like, that's the whole book of Hebrews. Now we've got a new set of actions as to what we should do. Love, be hospitable, be caring, show purity, be generous, boldly speak the name of Jesus, and follow godly people. And you got this nice little list of seven things that you should be doing. Beyond that, there's no obligation. You are free in Christ. And he hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So verse 8 adds this connotation that these first seven verses are timeless. They apply to you today as much as they did to Hebrews in the first century. And so when writers put that kind of seal on there, <laughs> now we have Jesus that never changes. Remember, we have a new boss, right? And we know the name of Messiah, and now we follow Messiah. So verse 9 kind of starts with this, a new set of thoughts. And it has to do with how we deal with everybody outside the church. And so it starts off with don't be carried about with various and strange doctrines because in verses 1 through 7, you just got a complete perfect doctrine. So anything else, don't listen to it. Like have a filter for this. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. So now we get on to food. That's interesting. You can, so I think that there's a food thing here that's actually dealing with a real situation and that when you went to temple, you got food, right? When they did peace offerings, that food went back out to the people. So maybe they're going back to temple to get actual literal food. But all of Hebrews and what we're talking about has all been spiritual too. So there's a spiritual aspect here and that goes with this physical activity of getting food. You can gauge a doctrine by the teacher that you observe, verse 7, and you can gauge a doctrine by the fruit that it produces, verse, verse 9. And so we think that, well, I'm not responsible for this. I just go to a church and it's a good church. But you're actually supposed to be testing and thinking about doctrine all the time. If you have an empty doctrine with empty sacrifices and empty lives that are empty of grace, it's, pretty, it's not hard to see that. Or you have a full doctrine with actual sacrifices of praise, with full lives, and you have people that are full of grace. And you just meet those people. And it doesn't mean they're perfect. It means that there's fruit growing in their life. So you follow after that. That's a bold thing to say for disciples to write that in a letter to a whole group of people. Like, this is how we do things. This is how we live as a church. It's also, I think sometimes it's too much for some people because it's just asking for too much of selflessness. It's also too little for some people where they think there has to be something more than this. we got to add to this in some way, shape, or form. So verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Ooh. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us not go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. There's an exception as we deal with people outside the church. There are people outside the church that really don't have a right to the fellowship because they're living in such a way that it's broken. And this is tough for me because when we look at this, there is, if there's this idea that you're refusing that idea of, of eating at the table with us, 
And part of that is because, remember in Hebrews, we got these people that are rejecting Jesus' call in their life and they're sticking with Judaism. So if you're going to stick with Judaism, stick with Judaism. So it's really a choice that they've made because they are those who, verse 10, serve the tabernacle. So Pharisees, we don't have to allow them into our church. We're not obligated to do that. And I, and I think that's a better perspective on this. It's not that we judge people and kick people away, but we say, look, if you're following after that religion, go follow that religion. You're not obligated to be here. In fact, we don't have an obligation, no right to eat, verse 10. We're not obliged to feed you. We don't owe you anything. You're not in fellowship with us. And so these are odd. I think it's specifically referring to a group of people Maybe they're addressing that this way in the verse. But now and then, and I think it's pretty rare, you do run into people that'll make a phone call. Pastors get these phone calls all the time. Hey, I'm so-and-so. I'm having tough times. I need money. And you're just like, uh, who are you? And what? Well, but you're a church. You have to, you have to help me, right? Um, I, I don't even know who you are. I'm sorry. Like, who is this? And then they'll say, well, I, I just told you. I'm struggling and I need help and I need money. And the answer, I think, from the way we're trained in Calvary's, is to say, oh, cool, we have lunch every Sunday. You can have a free meal. Come on over and get to know us. And we'll, we'll give you a free meal. But they don't have a right to that meal. It's a gift. And to change that perspective makes it so people aren't necessarily taking advantage of the body either. So verse 11, the burning of the sin offering was done away from the temple because they saw it as kind of impure, but we, or, or, or it never says if it's impure or not. It just says to burn it away from the temple. There's no real clear reason in the Old Testament why they had to burn the burnt offering away from the temple. But here we get to see the reason. It was an image of Jesus being taken away from the temple and doing something different. And Jesus being our burnt offering for our sin was taken away from the temple, and therefore we're not obliged to go to the temple either. So as they shift the covenant, God had already foreshadowed and put in an image of that shift before the, the covenant was even over. Verse 13 then is, if Jesus was kicked out of the temple, we follow him, we're also kicked out of the temple. So it's another argument in Hebrews as to why they don't need to keep doing temple, they don't need to keep doing sacrifices, and they don't need to keep listening to Pharisees and Sadducees on how to live their life. Nor does the church have any obligation to those people when they start telling us what to do. So, verse 14, For we have no continuing city, that's Jerusalem, but we seek the one to come, which is New Jerusalem. Uh, so this is an interesting passage. Jerusalem at the time had almost as much significance as the temple. People would swear on the city of Jerusalem because in the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the chosen place for the temple and the temple itself was a chosen thing. Solomon built the temple. David established the place. So he took over and conquered Jerusalem and built it up. After Babylon, when they came back to the Holy Land, they rebuilt the city of Jerusalem right alongside rebuilding the temple because they had that much significance in Mosaic tradition. So the note the um, note the idea here that they seek the one to come. They look for Jesus' work in the spirit of what they're doing and that we don't, at, right, at this point, there's no particular place that we have to worship at. So we're not obligated to go to the temple. If we were, that'd be a lot of plane trips every week. We're not obligated to go to Jerusalem. So the chapter pivots on verse 14 and we start looking at these ideas of how we're dealing with those situations. So verse 15, therefore by him, by Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is 
the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So verse 15 gives us a command. What we do instead of running to the temple with animals is that we give thanks with our lips. There's no implication that there's a, like you have to do that as a song, but there is an implication that we give praise all the time when we open our mouth. And we look at and perceive the world through what God's doing in our life. Verse 16 says, but do not forget and do good and to share for such sacrifices God is well pleased. In other words, that hospitality that we are asked to do at the beginning of the chapter is actually what God considers our sacrifice. The generosity that we have, the way we do things, God sees all of that as a sacrifice of praise. When we consider one another, God sees that as a gift to him. Jesus actually said, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. So when, he, when we're looking around the church and we're helping people grow in their faith, we're actually giving God something when we do that. There's specific instruction here to use our lips. Again, I reject the idea that we expect non-believers to read our minds. We actually tell people why we are the way we are and what we do, and we use our lips to do that. Um, if we're overflowing with faith and hope, the last two chapters, then we give thank verbally with our lips when we're out in the world and we do things. So we praise, I'm going to just break down verse 15. Therefore, we praise by him. So it, the reason we have praise is because of Jesus Christ. We praise in community because it says, let us. We praise by him. Let us continually offer praise. Praise can be solo, and the Bible does say that you can do those things. Jesus even encourages us to pray in private. Um, but as a community and as a church, we, do, we, we praise together and we do it as a group. This is why we ask what's going on in people's weeks. It's why we talk afterwards. It's why we sing songs. All of those are acts of praise because we're using our lips to talk about what God's doing. And we can bless other people when we do it. It says in verse 3 that we let us continually offer praise. That means it's not just on Sundays, right? And again, that's a danger to think that we're only Christians on Sundays. The, the fact is that it's an ongoing thing. It's a way of life that we live. The fourth idea is we praise as a sacrifice. We give up our own concern, our own will, our own complaints, our own worries, and we give those things up, and God actually sees that as a sacrifice. I think that's pretty cool. We praise to God, not taking, uh, not worshiping things, but the Creator. So using language like, oh, God's using you to bless me instead of you bless me, because that's worshiping the created. We say, God's working through you to bless me. Little tweaks on language. Look at what God has done here. We say things like, oh, praise God. Or, we, or somebody says something about the Lord, and we're like, amen, I, I agree with you. And in Christian communities, that language is different in every church I've ever seen. But the idea is we're working at how we use our lips, that we use the fruit of our lips to do that. So don't wait for people that can't hear the voice of God to hear what you're not saying. You have to say it for people to hear it. So otherwise people are just going to interpret it for, with all different made-up reasons unless you give them a reason for your joy and you're ready to defend your faith and say why you have the faith that you do. We, we praise by giving thanks. So we say things like, God is good. He's blessed me. I'm so thankful. If you have nothing to be thankful for, just here's, here's the bare minimum. Are you breathing? Because if you're breathing, you didn't make that happen. God meant let you breathe. So you wake up in the morning and you say, I got breath today. I'm able to breathe. Do you have food to eat? So that's why we say thanks before meals. As we, as we stop before we do the most basic things in life and say, thank you, Lord. If you're here today, we have some people that are sick today, but if you're here today, you have enough health 
to get to Bible study and fellowship. Praise the Lord. That's awesome. So we thank God for what we have. Here's, another, here's the maximum is do you have eternal life waiting for you? And that should make your heart sing. I got eternity waiting for me. I'm living for the Lord. So we praise his name. And I like how they just say his name in this verse. Um, the name is Jesus. It's been mentioned earlier in the book. But we say his name. And the word Jesus is powerful. I love this. In fact, when I was first trying, figuring my faith out, um, I, had, I hung around with a lot of people that swore all the time. And one of the swear words in their pantheon of swear words was Jesus. Only, and sometimes they'd even say Jesus Christ. Like, don't mistake who they're talking about. But they would say it like a swear word. When I became a believer and I started to share with people, oh, I'm just trying to figure out my faith. I'm following the Lord. They would use that swear word. They'd use every other swear word without even blinking around me. But they'd use that one and something in them would stop them and they'd say, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Or I would joke with them and say, oh, you're praying now too? Oh, that's so awesome. Like, yes, Jesus Christ, it's all about that. I'd be like, no, I'm just saying it. It's like, well, you know, or they'd say, oh, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, don't be sorry to me, man. It's not my name you're swearing with, right? And you have those conversations with people and you think about the use of his name. There is no salvation in any other for there's no other name under heaven given among men which we, by which we must be saved. That name actually has power. It's why people use it as a swear word. It's because it does have power. Notice that nobody swears by saying Buddha or Hare Krishna. Both would be outstanding swear words, but there's no power in those words. Right? Somebody doesn't stub their toe and say, oh, Buddha. But it works, right? Doesn't it? It's just there's no power there. So it's an odd thing that we use Jesus Christ in that, but I think it's also an indicator that there is some power there, that when people say it, they feel like it has force, even non-believers. We boldly say the name both inside and outside the church. We practice inside the church so that we do it comfortably outside the church. Super easy. Verse 16, it also, it's, it, it also notes that it's easy to forget this. Do you see that? Don't forget to do good and share. It wouldn't say that if it wasn't super easy to forget some of these things because life just happens and life gets busy. We get exhausted. Some of us work jobs that keep us going 50, 60 hours a week and you're tired and it's really easy to forget these things but it's a powerful evangelism tool when you do good and share above and beyond everything else that burdens your life. You make time for the things that are important. So we do good and share. Um, <laughs> they go together. There's an and there. It's a conjunction. Think of it as one word, do good and share. It's one thing. If you do good and you hope for people to decode that, the enemy is going to make sure they never decode your good deeds. If you share but you never do good, you're just a hypocrite and you're in arguments with people all the time. They've never experienced your, your goodness, so why would they care what you say? You don't have a relationship with them. And it's a dangerous thing that I've seen Christians on both sides of it. There's no softening this message. You do good and you share your faith. And they have to go together to have the kind of power that Jesus' name can have. And that it's a strength thing. So you do good, you build a relationship, you show your intention and you tell them why, and you have to be a blessing to somebody before they care what they say or they care what you say. So when they, they're like, man, why are you being so nice to me? Because Jesus has been nice to me. And you don't have to push at that point. You just watch that heart soften up over time. 
And they're like, man. And then you're like, you want to see more of it? Come with me to church on Sunday. You'll see even there's all sorts of weirdos like me. And we all do good for one another. We all care about one another. We all put up with each other. And there's some nutballs at my church, so I'm just going to warn you ahead of time. Verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. They watch out for your souls as those who must give account. They're, let them do so with joy and not grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. So again, we're talking about spiritual leadership. The Bible doesn't back away from the topic, so I won't either. Even though it sounds a little self-serving. Be nice to Sean. What I think verse 7 has to do with is to consider your elders, and it's about respecting those people that teach. Um, I think when we get to verse 17, um, it's not about your spiritual mentors or the people you're following. I actually think this could also be about people outside the church too because it says, obey those who rule over you and be submissive. This has as much to do with your boss as it has to do with people in your church. So they watch out for your souls adds a spiritual connotation to it and they have to give account. So that happens both inside and the outside the church. If you have a boss that's told you, I need you to do this work, and you're fudging on that work, it's not you. You might lose your job, but that boss has to be accountable to their boss as, as to what you're doing. Don't be a burden to people. If you've been given a job, do your job. And the way we taught our kids is don't just do your job. Do your job plus about 10%. Give a little more than what your boss has asked you to do. As long as you're not overstepping, right? Try to make sure that your employer's... Um, Think of you as an employee, not with grief, like, dang, I'm paying them way more than they're worth. But they think of you as an employee as, man, I get way more than I pay this person for. They just, they do their job, they do it well, they do it joyfully. What a great person to have working. Anybody who's been in management knows that phrase, let them do so without, with joy and not with grief. Nobody wants to fire people. Nobody wants to have a disciplinary conversation with somebody. That's one of the most horrible parts about management ever. And it's not fun to do that. So when that has to happen, realize that, that they're doing it because they absolutely have to, not because a manager delights in having disciplinary conversations with people. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who get, must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. It's one of the only mentions where they're talking about profit. They say be generous. But they're also now giving you something where it's actually profitable to you to be a joy to your boss. Why is that? Because when your boss needs somebody to take on more responsibility and they want to pay more people, to do, they go to the people that are a joy. That's how you get promotions, is that you're faithful in the small things, people give you bigger things. The principle remains the same in the church. There is a profit to ministry. It is a joy to serve other people. And when you're faithful in the small things and doing them and you're, and you're reliable and you're there and people say, hey, could you help out with this and this? That's a profit to you. Your ministry just expanded within the body. So it's a neat thing. The word obey there, again, I'm defining these words in part because I think in America we struggle with words like obey and submit. Those are words that have been under attack for 50 years in America. We used to not have a problem with that's my boss, I work for the company. But now we do. The word obey there is um, paitho, which is to persuade, listen to, or even to befriend somebody. Isn't that different than how we've defined the word obey? So it is to allow yourself to be led by somebody else. Obey. And so when you look at the biblical Greek meaning of that word, it's, I'm struck by how different that is and what a negative connotation the word obey has in America. The word submissive, 
Hypeco means to give something away or to yield without resisting. That doesn't mean be a doormat. It doesn't mean let yourself be abused. Like we just, we've turned submissive into this horrible term. It's simply, in fact, if I'm going to give something away, it implies that I have something to give. I actually have the power. So when I yield to, when I befriend those who rule over me and I yield to them because they watch out for my soul, that's a loving relationship between a mature person and a mature, somebody with authority and somebody without authority. It's not something that's negative. Everything in us wants to do things our way, even when we're doing it the wrong way. But in the, in the spirit, we, we come into the idea that maybe the way we're doing it isn't right, and we should learn from people that are doing it right. So it applies in the church too. There is a supervisory idea there that anybody who directs or loves us enough to give us guidance, we should listen to that and take it very seriously. That doesn't mean you obey things that are contrary to the Bible either. And it means you obey things within this context of work, right? So it's tough for us to get this out of whack. If it's confusing to folks, let's talk about it before you make decisions. Um, but obviously, when a boss tells you to do something that's unbiblical, you say, no thanks, that's not, your, that's not your authority, because that belongs to God. So when people overstep their hegemony, their rule, this is not a verse that supports the idea that you obey people even when they're evil. This is just a verse that says, especially when you're trying to be a godly person and you're within the law and you're not doing anything against what God tells you to do, um, that you, you find ways to be yielding or befriending those people that rule over you. If we have assurance of God's faithfulness and we have hope in his promises, then we have every reason to enter into the battles of this world and to do it with grace and to do it with kindness, to be a blessing even to the people that rule over us to be a blessing to people that are our brothers and sisters, to be a blessing to the people that we are leading in new ways and the people we disciple. So they let, let people do that with joy. Um, let, be the one person that folks don't have to worry about and manage every week. Be the person that comes to church every week and you add value. You don't take, you don't take from the people around you all the time. And again, this is a lifetime journey. This is the end of the book of Hebrews built on a whole set of ideas around hope and faith. It's not a starting point. It's something that mature believers work on. Then verse 18, so that's kind of the wrapping it up. Verse 18 kind of is the conclusion of the book of Hebrews. It, it, it sends it all together, but it's also another command. Verse 18 says, pray for us, the people who wrote the book. For we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I might be restored to you the sooner so this is a weird, these two verses, they don't help us with the authorship of the book at all because verse 18 is plural and verse 19 is singular. So if the author is talking here, and we've brought this up a few times, when it says pray for us, that's a strong indication that there's a team of church leaders putting this book together. But then you get this little add-on in verse 19, but I especially urge you to do this, which indicates there's a singular author of this book. So that's tricky, that doesn't help at all. Um, it could be that there was kind of a document written by the whole group, and then there was a note put on by the person who penned it. You know, but th there's no name on Hebrews, so we don't know who authored it. We just know that it's referred to and it was used. So pray for us, then, um, more importantly, is a command to pray. And it's the final command of the book of Hebrews. Um, it is given the emphasis of verse 19, but I especially urge you to do this. Um, and and, and 
and really prayer can't be underestimated. So it, it's worth, before we get into the benediction of verse 20, let's pull that apart. First of all, the word but in verse 19 is not a contrary word. It's not the word we typically have in the Greek for but. But makes it sound like verse 18, but I especially urge you to do this, like they're two ver they're contrary. Um, but the word there is peristeros, which means more abundantly or more importantly. So pray for us that we can have good, that we live in good conscience. We're desiring to live honorably. More importantly, I especially urge you to do this. I think is just the better translation there. It's an emphatic like we've seen through the rest of the chapter. Um, so instead of being a contrary, it's actually an emphatic. It's directive in that they more especially more. It's the same pattern we saw in verse 1, which is why it's a bookend to the chapter. So the words there are more especially more, especially urge, more especially urge, and then it says you. So there's a specific command to do it. It's five times emphatic just like we saw five times negative with Jesus won't forsake you. So the balance here is almost poetic and the writing of it. Pray. I think the reason they put prayer last is uh, they've said a few times now, don't forget to do this. Don't forget to do that. Prayer is something that I, it's the weirdest thing on the planet. Let's just be honest. There's an almighty God and he says, just open your mouth and talk to me. Or you know what? You don't even have to open your mouth. Just talk to me in your heart and I'll hear you. Isn't that weird? Like every other religion, you got to go to the top of a pyramid. You got to lift your hands. You got to meet, you know, on the lunar eclipse. You got to do things at certain times, certain places. There's all this complexity to it. But in Christianity and in Judaism, even in Judaism, you had to bring your thing to the altar so that the priest would pray for you, right? But in Christianity, it's like just pray, pray for, pray whenever, pray without ceasing, and it's an odd thing. And and I think it's a spiritual discipline because it's not intuitive in our flesh. You can get saved, and there's these Christian things that we do. Nothing in our flesh thinks they're normal. Like, we have to kind of get over it. Here's the weird thing is when you do pray, God almost, it's like a, a parent teaching their kid to walk. You know, and you're just hovering over them, and you're like, good. And if the kid starts to tumble, you kind of grab them a little bit and help them get upright again. And you let those leg muscles get stronger. And after a while, the kid's playing in the backyard, and the parent doesn't even tune in anymore. But I think prayer's like that. When you first get to be a believer and you pray for the first time, it feels so awkward. You don't even know what to say to an almighty God. You hear somebody who prays in King James Version and you're like, I can't pray like that. I'm not that great. And God's just right over you going, that's okay. You don't, frankly, I didn't write the King James Version. I, right? And I know you don't speak Greek. So just pray, just talk to me. And, and the simplest of prayers, like God help me. God's like, boom, I'm right there. It's like God's waiting for us to take the next step. And I think the same thing's true with every spiritual discipline. Worshiping is always awkward. Being in a room full of people singing, think of how weird that is, how unique that is to the Christian church. You know, and, and praising and worshiping God with your whole heart, mind, and soul, being hospitable, being kind, a lot of those things take those baby steps up front. And every spiritual discipline, when you try it, and it gets confirmed by the Holy Spirit, it's reinforced, and then it gets expanded until sometimes you're like, I'm praying all the time, I don't even care anymore. You're out in the backyard running by yourself. And God's like, good, they got it. And then God starts working on your heart on something else. Now about this worship time you have. Let's talk about worship. You get that good, and then God's like, okay, now let's talk about considering other people. 
And God is constantly just a parent helping us grow in prayer, worship, Bible study time, getting up and, then, and doing some Bible study or staying up late and doing it, fellowshipping, exhorting each other. The first time you had to go to a brother and sister and say, I got to talk to you. I got to talk to you about something. That's an awkward thing to do. The more you do it, the more you see the fruit of it, God blesses it, and then you keep getting better and better at it. So I think the writer is is really appropriate when they say, pray for us, for we're confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live on. Look, we're good, we're in good conscience, but we still need you to pray for us. So I think that they're, they're saying like, it's not that there's something wrong or a huge problem, it's just pray for us. We're confident that we have a good conscience. Another way to read that is pray for us. We're, maybe we're a little overconfident because we're feeling like we're going pretty good right now. And I think exercising the, the discipline of the faith, it's like this is when the enemy attacks. So you got to pray for us because everything's going so good right now that keep, please keep us in your prayers. Especially there, the emphatic, five times emphatic in that sentence. Why do we pray? We pray because we desire to live honorably. And we just want to live a life that honors our God. And the honor there isn't for our own honor. We know that from the rest of the scriptures entirely. The honor that we're talking about there is that we want God to get the honor through our life. So we live rightly. And we have a desire to live rightly. And that makes pray, praying grow in its importance. When we see God moving, we should be increasing our prayer. A lot of times people wait for the worst possible things to happen in their life before they start to pray. I think it should go the opposite way. When all the good things start to happen, we, we give God the glory and worship. Really simple mechanic there. If it takes bad things to get you to pray, what do you think a good father in heaven would let happen in your life? Many bad things. And I'm not saying it's an automatic thing. Sometimes we go through struggles and trials because God's trying to work on our character. But if the only thing that gets us to pray is a crisis, let's be logical about that. Expect a lot of crises. Because God wants you to pray. He's commanded you to pray. So pray without ceasing. In fact, when things are going really, really good, that's what we see here in the the final verses, is you should pray a lot. So I'm going to summarize the whole book of Hebrews, and then we'll do the benediction in the end, and we'll wrap things up. Here's the whole book. Chapter 1 and 2, there's only Jesus. He's it. Chapter 3, you got a new house of Jesus, a new family with Jesus. Chapter 4, Jesus is now our high priest, not the, not the Jewish high priest. We got a new rest in Jesus. We can relax. All those rules go away. We got a new king and a new relationship with Jesus. Chapter 5, we're going to get into some tough topics in the book of Hebrews, and I'm not going to feed you the milk. I'm going to feed you the real food because you're not immature little babies anymore. So grow up. That's chapter 5. Chapter 6, there is a new faith that's established through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thick topic. Chapter 7, Melchizedek is the model of priesthood that Jesus follows, not Moses. Chapter 8, there's a new covenant because of all of that. Complex topic. Chapter 9, there's now an eternal sacrifice, which means we don't have to keep giving sacrifices over and over and over again. It goes forever. Then chapter 10, therefore, because of all that, we have faith, hope, and love, our three primary dictations in our life. And this changes how we live. It changes everything. Then chapter 11, trust in God's faithfulness. Chapter 12, have hope even when you're going through suffering and chastisement. And then chapter 13, practically exercise your love within the church and with outside the church. And finally, pray for everybody all the time with an emphatic on that act. Pray. 
So the end of the book of Hebrews is just this idea that you should pray for each other. And so you start out with that. And then you think, well, wait a second. Where's all the other stuff? Where's the food drive? I don't see... I don't, see, I don't see a clothing rack here. I, I, there's all these other things that come with the church, but Hebrews doesn't talk about any of those things because maybe in the body that you're in, you're not being called to do those things. What you're being called to do is what's in the book of Hebrews, and it's so hard for us as humans to stick to that simple model of life that we have because we want to add things to it all the time. Why, there's nothing about robes that I should be wearing. There's nothing about what kinds of songs we sing or don't sing. There's nothing here about the color of the drapes or the color of the chairs. There's nothing in Hebrews, nothing in Hebrews about any kind of other ministries outside the church. Not to say that ministries aren't important, but they're not the focus of the person trying to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. They're the outpouring of it. And so Hebrews sets that up. And then you get the benediction. It's beautiful. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well, pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You get a little add-on in verse 22, but what a just a beautiful thought, to be pleasing in his sight. That's all he wants. He doesn't want anything extra. He doesn't ask anything extra. The, the weight of Jesus is light. The burden is light. It is an absolute freeing thing to think, all I need to do is do what's in this chapter. And God's and what that is pleasing in God's sight, how amazing is that? The writer adds a little note, And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. The entire book of Hebrews is a word of exhortation. He's challenging the church to do this. For I know that our brother Timothy has been set free. Therefore, we know Timothy is not on the writing team. Whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace and be with you all. Amen. Just a note at the end. Uh, this is the best passage that argues for Paul's authorship of Hebrews. why most scholars believe Paul wrote it but it's not conclusive. There are other disciples that went to Italy. There are other disciples, they all knew Timothy. So there's nothing conclusive about it, um, but you got the message. Even chapter five, which is you guys are a bunch of baby Christians, grow up and deal with the big topics, is got an encouragement sandwich on either side of it in the book of Hebrews. The whole book is like, not just chapter five, grow up, it's grow up and be blessed. And enjoy the kingdom that God's given you. Enjoy the new covenant that God's given you. There's so much less burden in Christianity than in Judaism. Leave Judaism behind and don't go back to synagogue. You don't owe them anything and they have no say over what happens at our table. It's a complete split from the Mosaic Levitical system. And Hebrews makes that argument in such a way that they can feel unburdened because they probably grew up with that rabbi. And when that rabbi says, well, you need to be here, you need to be doing this, there's an emotional pull there because they loved that rabbi. So Hebrews encourages them to invite the rabbi with them to church, but not feel like that rabbi has dictates over what happens in the church anymore. Their authority has been broken. So it's a great window into the tone of love. I think this benediction of very tough, convicting message in Hebrews, but then this end where it's like, hey, I appeal to you, brethren, bear with, like, 
deal with my exhortation. Like, bear with it. And just take what I'm saying and handle it. And I've done it in a few words, which is kind of funny. Like, this is a pretty long book, really. Um, and just, I love you, is what I hear in verse 22. I just, it's this kind of gentle sense. And we get a glimpse inside how these early Christians interacted with each other. And it's like, greet everybody who rules over you and all the saints. Greet everybody that you know. And tell them all we love them. And you get a sense of how closely knit these people were. They all knew each other. When he brings up Timothy, it's not like it's our brother Timothy. And it's not like there might not be other Timothys in the group. It gives us a sense of how small the group was, how few of them there were. But they all, like he brings up Timothy like they all know who Timothy is. And, and probably for good reason. They probably all know who Timothy was. So you really get this glimpse of just this sweet fellowship that these people had. And I'm kind of glad that 22 through 25 was left on the letter is because you get that kind of piece. And then you end with verse 25, grace be with you all. Amen. No matter what the letter has called them out on, no matter what sins they're dealing with in this letter, the end thought of a believer to another believer is, hey, just grace, grace with you. May God go with you. May he give you peace. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we get this glimpse inside the early church. We thank you that you retained Hebrews, that it became part of the, the canon, uh, and we can just see this. Lord, we know the exhortation was written for the Hebrews of the first century, but we also see how it applies to our own lives when we're trying to leave our old life behind and just be in fellowship with other believers. Lord, open our hearts. Help us to not be a stranger, but to be part of the family. Um, Lord, help people draw close to you. So, Lord, we love you. We know that you gave your life for us. Lord, that your sacrifice on the cross was not for an idle reason, but it was the very fulfillment of the law for the sacrifice required of sin, a perfect sacrifice to perfectly eliminate sin forever, an eternal sacrifice that would eternally deal with it. Lord, if there's anybody in this room that needs to do business with you, Lord, may they just pray, forgive me of my sins. Lord, may we come into your presence with boldness. Lord, I'm so sorry for what I've done in my life. But Lord, I want to live for you. And I ask you to be in my life. Let your sacrifice be for my sins too. And Lord, may you come before the throne of grace with me, alongside me, so that you can defend me. Because I have no defense outside of your sacrifice and your gift. Lord, we pray that we can lift you up in our hearts and that we can be praying that every single day. Lord, that it's, it's uh, your grace that saves us and we want to give everything we can back to you, not out of obligation or duty because it's simply not in the book of Hebrews. But we want to do all those acts of love because we have faith and because we have hope because of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.